WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Uh, before we begin tonight, we've got a great show lineup for you. I just wanted to announce to my listeners out there that this will be my last live show. I've been here at Impact Exposure being a host for five years, and I've been Exposure Director, meaning I book the show. Basically, I have full, beautiful, creative control over the show for the past four years, and it has been the most amazing experience of my college career. I came in as a music education undergraduate um, that knew that I wanted to do journalism, came here to the Impact Studios and fell in love with radio. And um, as of yesterday, I was hired by Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, an NPR station, and I will be producing for them, uh, doing stories as well as being their fill-in morning edition host. Um, and I've got to say, I would not have been hired if it wasn't for Impact 89FM. So thank you, Impact 89FM. Thank you so much, listeners, for being there. I really, really appreciate it, and the show means the world to me. So we've got one hour left, and uh, it's going to be a great show. We got, um, we're going to have a live and local blues performance on the show. Um, we'll also have an MSC researcher talk about the discovery of the God particle, which explains how the world came to exist. Um, and we'll also be talking about No Child Left Behind and how Michigan got waived from a lot of those requirements and what that will mean to the education system. Uh, but first, usually when the majority of a state is designated a disaster zone, people picture floods wiping out homes or tornadoes stripping neighborhoods bare. But earlier this month, most of the country's counties in Michigan were designated disaster areas for agriculture. Michigan is the largest producer of tart cherries in the nation, and this year the state lost 90 percent of its crop. Up next is a report I did on how farmers and businesses are trying to cope in what is known to be the cherry capital of the world. Ben LaCrosse manages 750 acres of cherries in Lelano County, just outside Traverse City. He's walking through his cherry orchard next to his family's home. Usually around this time of year, each of his trees would be holding 50 to 100 pounds of cherries. But this year is a little different. Um, as you can see on this tree, there are zero cherries on it. LaCrosse just got done harvesting his cherry crop for the season. He says in a normal year, he harvests four and a half million pounds of cherries in five weeks. This year, it only took one week to harvest four percent of his annual yield. So what we harvested this year in a week, we would normally do on an average day. The loss of cherries in the region is a result of an early tease of summer followed by a frost. You don't tend to associate a natural disaster with 80-degree sunny days. LaCrosse says after more than a week of warm weather in March, the buds on his cherry trees began to swell, only to be decimated by 19 nights of freezing temperatures a few weeks later. LaCrosse says this may be the worst harvest in recorded history. Cherry growers talk a lot about 2002. That was a terrible year as well. But LaCrosse says farmers had tarts in reserve back then that they could sell to pay the bills. So it's basically taken us 10 years to regain those markets. And now we have another catastrophic freeze event. And this time around, there are no reserves because the last two harvests have been lean ones. So there is nothing in the inventory pipeline to supply our customer bases. So that means LaCrosse is going to have to import cherries for the first time in order to keep his customers. We're trying to be creative as to how we can stretch what little of a crop there is out there and Lacrosse isn't alone. I tried cherry almond butter. In Traverse City, shoppers are tasting the 15 dozen cherry products sold at Cherry Republic. Here you can find chocolate covered cherries, cherry peanut butter, and cherry salsa to name a few. Owner Bob Sutherland says he's creating new products this year to stretch the few cherries available by mixing more cranberries, nuts, and chocolate into the company's treats. For the first time, we have a truce with cranberries, and the war with cranberries is uh, uh, on a one-year off. And like lacrosse, Cherry Republic will also be importing cherries for the first time in the business's history. Our first choice is to work with Michigan cherries, and uh, but I want to keep my baker's bacon, the jam makers uh, jamming, and our, our dryers going, so we do need to uh, source cherries wherever we can. 
That means when people start seeing cherry products from Michigan companies this year, a lot of those cherries will be coming from places like Poland and Turkey. But back on Leelanau Peninsula, cherry farmer Ben LaCrosse is hopeful there will be a good harvest next cherry season. There's an old saying in farming that um, we've had two good years in the cherry business, 1991 and next year. So we can't wait for next year at this point. The government is working on ways to help farmers like LaCrosse. Low-interest loans are available to farmers this year, and the federal farm bill could give growers more help, like adding crop insurance for boutique fruits like tart cherries. But in the meantime, farmers will hope Mother Nature will produce a fruitful crop next year. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on 89 The impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Singer... Kathleen Bolthouse, as well as her guitarist uh, Steve Delay, are in the studio to perform for us. They will also be performing this Saturday at, from 7 to 9 as part of the East Lansing Summer Concert Series that takes place in downtown East Lansing on the east side of the Marriott. And they are in the studio to chat with us and sing some tunes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, Kathleen, I'm curious, how did you get into blues? Uh, my day job really is early childhood. I've been uh, a teacher and I was a director um, of a child care center here in East Lansing um, several years ago, 15 years ago now. And um, one of our employees was in a blues band and he invited me out on a weekend. Um, he just said, come on out, you know, listen to the band, sing, you know, his garage band. And um, so... Um, so after a while, I said, okay, I did some singing in college, um, and as a kid, um, and choir in high school, all of that stuff. But, um, I really didn't know much about the blues. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, so I went out, um, one afternoon on a Sunday afternoon and, um, and there were nine guys standing around <laughs> playing blues and drinking and, uh, and I said, hi, how are you? And, you know, I was all in my teacher clothes and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Jim Gleason, um, who's, uh, still a friend, um, handed me a piece of paper that had lyrics scribbled on it and they just started playing like a 12 bar, um, blues shuffle and said, here, sing this. And uh, so I just started singing and, um, two weeks later, um, some of us had, uh, we had put a band together, um, called uh, Blues Express, um, and we were together two or three years, and then those, um, those, some of those musicians moved off and created other bands like Steppin' In It and, oh. um, yeah, mm-hmm. some other bands, so, um, so that's, I just fell in love with it. What do you think makes a good blues singer? Uh, I think you have to be able to, to, I think a good singer in general has to be able to identify with, um, at least some of the lyrics. I mean, there are some songs that I sing and I just have a lot of fun with them. Um, and then there are some slow blues tunes like Steve and I have been doing, um, after a while, um, uh, Steve was the first member of uh, the Kathleen Bolt House Band. We started about six years ago, and and uh, after a while, is an old Freddie King tune, and and uh, there's just one line in that tune that I can that I 
really identify with. And I think if you can do that as a singer and um, it's all, it's kind of a lot like theater. It's a lot like acting where you, you kind of have to become the person that's, that's um, singing those lyrics and really feel um, the emotion behind, behind the lyrics um, so that people kind of feel what you're feeling rather than just, you know, oh, that's a nice song with a nice story. If it has a good story, and and blues has stories, um, which is why I was drawn to that music as well. So I think in any genre, you have to be able to um, really express the feeling behind what the song is, the lyrics we're trying to say. Without further ado, would you guys be willing to play a song for us tonight? Sure. Yeah. Sure, we'd like to. Um, we put out a CD a couple years ago, um, and this was one of the tunes um, from that CD that I wrote, um, Ain't No Stranger to the Blues. Tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Kathleen Bolthouse and her guitarist, Steve DeLay. And they will be performing this Saturday as part of the East Lansing Summer Concert Series that happens at 7. And that is to the east of the Marriott in downtown East Lansing. And they just got done performing Ain't No Stranger. So I'm curious, Was that was an original tune by yeah. you, wasn't it? How yeah. often, what's, what's, what would be your ratio for original tunes versus blues standards that you perform? Uh, we do quite a mix. Um, there are nine tunes, nine original tunes on the first CD we put out a couple years ago, and we don't really perform all of them, um, consistently. So a handful, and then Steve's got a couple originals that, that he does when we play together. Um, we do a handful of, of originals, um, and the others are old 
old blues standards, um, like you mentioned. Um, we do some soul stuff like knock on wood and uh, sign seal delivered. And I'd say a lot of times it really depends on the, the show that we're playing. Uh, if we're playing, um, you know, a four or five hour, you know, gig at a you know small club, um, they're going to be more cover tunes in there. There's mm-hmm. going to be more blues standards. If we're playing a, a shorter show, more of a showcase kind of um, right. show, then then we're going to play more original songs. How would you describe Michigan or Lansing's blues community? Great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we There's, were just talking about that before the show. I attended a, um open jam last night at the uh, Michigan Brewing Company where some friends of mine started. They started an open jam um, back in January, I think. And, and um, the, there's uh, something that's unique to Lansing because I've talked to a lot of um, musician friends of mine and something that's unique to this area is the camaraderie and the friendship and um, the interchanging of musicians. Scotty Ullman from uh, 94.9 stopped in and he sat in and uh, played um, with us. And um, and everyone knows everyone. And at some point, I mean, a lot of us have been in this area doing this for so many years that um, especially if it's uh, in the blues uh, in the blues genre, everyone sort of knows those standards. So, um, so the open jams are are a way for musicians to connect with other musicians. We all get together, you know, outside of the blues scene. Um, and I I wouldn't say there is no competition because. You know, everybody wants to play the same, you know, everybody's vying to play the same clubs. And there are a lot of extremely talented musicians and great bands in this area. We're lucky as a community to have that. Um, Obviously, there's a little bit of competition because everybody wants to play the same clubs and you can only fit in so many bands. But um, but if we go out to a show... Um, a blues show, you know, there are times when musicians will just, you know, they'll just call you up to sing one, you know, or they'll say, Steve, why don't you come up and play one? There's just um, a camaraderie that doesn't exist um, in other places. I I would, I would guess in that situation that a lot of people play with multiple bands. Is that kind of the case in the blues community here? Mm Mm-hmm. like I said, when I first started a band, Blues Express, um, uh, I was in the uh, – Jason Strothide was the bass player, and he is now the bass player in Hoopties, and Andy Wilson was the harmonica player, and now he's in Stepping in It. But we all get together at times and share the stage together. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's just an incredible experience. And where do you go to see the blues in the area? Uh, the Green Door. Um, Moriarty's has kind of a mix of blues and um, folk and Celtic and um, um, where else for blues? Specifically, blues. There's not a lot of places. Yeah. There, there's a couple. Uh, there's a couple clubs in um, in Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids. Um, Billy's in Grand Rapids is one. Um, Old Dog Tavern and um, and Four Eleven Club are the ones in Kalamazoo. Um, and we also in Old Town. We're going to have Town. our blues fest coming up in September, right? Right. right. Are you going to be performing there? I don't know. I got to get on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. I, make, <laughs> I have to have my people call my people. Wait a minute. I am my own people. Right. I have to make some phone calls. And we played that last. We played that last year. Um, and they try to switch up every other year. You know, they're they're not going to get the same. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, have the same local bands play every September. And we've done it every other year for probably five or six years now since we've been together. Um, we've played the Kalamazoo Blues Festival um, once or twice, and would like to get back in there. Um, but um, the the Sir Pizza Grand Cafe has bands um, in there town. as well in Old Town. 
um, and that's real comfortable, um, nice sound and venue and perspective too. Used to do a lot of st- uh, a lot of stuff, and I'm not sure what you know they have going on there now, but they're. It's in the paper. Right. <laughs> you so, got to look at the paper. Well, without further ado, would you like to uh, play one more song for us? Sure. That would yeah. be great. Yeah. This is know. not an original tune. Uh, this is a Junior Wells tune, right? And uh, made popular by Susan Tedeschi, who's extremely popular right now in the blues scene. So um, it's a favorite. All right. Studio is singer Kathleen Bolthouse and her guitarist Steve DeLay, and they will be performing this Saturday as part of the East Lansing Summer Concert Series, which will take place at 7 p.m. in downtown East Lansing, east of the Marriott. So, Kathleen Bolthouse and Steve, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Emily. Can I give one quick plug? I forgot that on Thursday nights at the Waterfront Grill, they have blues bands um, <laughs> lined up through August and September, and we're playing September 20th. All right. Um, at, at which is located in the Lansing City Market. So, all we're, right, we're going to be excited to be back there. Well, thanks again so much, and thanks for good luck us. on your performances. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First. 
Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No. Don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Scientists recently discovered what is called the God Particle, or in scientific terms, the Higgs boson. It's said to explain how the world came to exist. Here to talk about the discovery is Wade Fisher of MSU's Department of Physics and Astronomy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell me about what is this God Particle. Why is it so important to the world of physics? Well, it uh, and, and we try to stay away from the God particle nomenclature. It's uh, mm-hmm. that was used to sell a book, and, and uh, it kind of takes us in the wrong direction with some of the listeners. Um, so w- the reason that it's important is that it, it's sort of the, the the keystone to one of the biggest theories that we have that we use to describe the the fundamental aspects of the universe. So the research that we do is, is designed to to understand. What is the universe fundamentally made out of, the, what we call the fundamental particles, and how do they interact? Now, we can make a list of everything that we know that's out there. You know, We can get a list of what we think is the way that they interact. And in the end, we notice some interesting things about it. So the particles come in families or generations, and each generation is heavier than the last. And there's no really good reason for this, and there's not really a good reason for why they have the masses that they do. Now, the theories that we have know how to deal with this, but the problem is they predict a new particle in order to make that happen, and that's what we call the Higgs boson. So once you have the Higgs boson, once it's there and it, you know you know that it exists, then that makes the the whole mass generation idea you know something that you can understand from the the theory perspective. If it's not there, if it was a situation where we just couldn't find such a thing, then we would know that the theories that we use are completely wrong, and we have to start from scratch. I remember when I first heard um, the announcement that this was discovered, um, I was talking to my cousin. He's like, yeah, one of my coworkers says that he was looking at this, and it says that it's going to change so much of what we know of physics. And I and I live with a bunch of Ph.D. students of physics, and I was like, oh, man, are they going to have to relearn all of their years in college for, you know, this new idea um, where, you know, I read that this this um, Higgs boson is responsible for giving mass to matter, and so this, you know, putting this new idea in the equation. Are people, are my, are my housemates going to have to relearn their PhDs in <laughs> physics now because of this new element that's pretty important? Well, actually, it would have been the other way around. If if we couldn't find it, we would have to take all of our textbooks, throw them in the trash, and start from scratch and start thinking about, you know, what did we miss? And uh, even though we found it now, that you know, that nothing's you know finished, we might have found something that's not the Higgs boson. Mm-hmm. We might have found something that behaves like a Higgs boson, but has, you know, other brothers that, you know, also do the same job. You know, so it's going to be a lot of work now to to actually figure out what is it that we found? Are there more of them? You know, how does it really behave? Can we use this to describe everything? So it's actually, you know, kind of exciting for us. It opens a a whole new chapter in in understanding, you know, what other physics might be out there. So you've always known that this Higgs boson exists, but you've just never been able to Find it or discover we, it? Right. We've hypothesized for the last 50 years that it needs to be there. So a few gentlemen came along back in 1964 and said, hey, you know, this would be a great way of explaining why things have mass. Go and find it. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Now, the reason it's taken so long is that, you know, you, you can't just go out and pull Higgs bosons out of the vacuum and, and, <laughs> and look at them because they're heavy. 
Uh, you know, they're sort of 125 times heavier than uh, a proton, which is, you know, what we're made out of mostly. So in order to do that, we have to crash particles together. We're using particle accelerators, and, and we have one here in the United States uh, at uh, Fermilab, which is just outside of Chicago. And that was the world's most powerful particle accelerator up until a couple of years ago when the, the accelerator at the Large Hadron Collider in, at, uh, at a European nuclear facility came online, which is about seven times more powerful. Now, you can imagine that uh, if you are, for example, baking something, if you don't have enough of your ingredients, you can still make a smaller version of whatever you're baking. But if you don't have enough energy to make a Higgs boson, you just don't get any Higgs bosons. And that's basically where we were. We just didn't have enough energy in our accelerators to make enough of them so that we could study them. But once the LHC came online, you know, it was very quick to, to get to the, that data there and, and really tell us that we're seeing something new. So this, I hope that this is not a dumb question. I do not come from a, a physics or science background. But the, as you said, the particle was found at the Large Hadron Collider in, in Switzerland. Does And I know that we have the – MSU has the superconducting cyclotron. We also have FRIB that's coming. Are any of those um, devices going to help in, in similar discoveries, do you think? Well, they, they do similar things, and, and but the physics that we study at the two different facilities is a little bit different. You, you can imagine that uh, you're, you're attacking problems on two different scales. One, um, where we, we're studying at the Large Hadron Collider, we're looking at very small things, trying to understand what's happening at, at, with fundamental particles. Now, some of the research that comes out of the NSCL and, and uh, the FRIB that will come along, you can use that information to to give you some feedback into what has been happening in the cosmos, the very large scales, and understand how, you know, galaxies have come together, how stars have formed, how all of these things have evolved throughout the age of the universe. So you're attacking very similar questions, just coming from two different directions. Mm -hmm. So how long has this search been for this Higgs boson? How long has it been going on for? Well, so ever since the, 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 the theory came out in 1964, we've been, you know, imagining that we should be able to find it. Now, we started looking at very small masses, and it's been limited by our experimental techniques. So and we've just been cranking up the energy as the technology has, has allowed it. And that's really been the limiting factor is the technology that allows us to go to that, that extreme. And what has been your involvement with this search? So uh, when I was in college, undergrad in college, I started working with a research group, uh, and then I went on to graduate school, and then, you know, eventually now here at, uh, on the faculty of, of, at MSU. So for about 15 years, I've been performing this research, and I led uh, one of the groups at the, the Fermilab Tevatron where we were doing this, this same search. Uh, and ultimately, our, our results gave us, got us to the point where we could say that we have new evidence for this kind of particle. At almost exactly the same week that we made that announcement, the researchers at CERN said, well, now we have something even more obvious than what you've seen there, and it's you know what we can say is, is, is a discovery or observation of something new. So really the two teams came together at the same time, and, and if you see something new at two different places, it, it's pretty clear that you know it's not just a, a fluctuation or a, you know something that you, you, you don't understand. And how many people do you think were involved in this entire search? Thousands. Thousands. You know, if, wow. if you if you if you just look at the year that we, of the discovery, you know, it, it's on the order of you know six seven thousand people working. And if you integrate throughout history, all the people who have made contributions that have allowed us to come forward, it's you know hundreds of thousands. It's you know it's really been you know building on the backs of giants to get to where we are. You've obviously spent a lot of investment in in searching for this, but what happens now that it's been found? What's going to happen to your studies as well as other people that invest in their time in there or other physicists? Well, so the machines that we, we've built to, to look for the Higgs boson, we can use to look for a lot of different things. You know, you know, even though that we found the Higgs boson, we know there's some holes in the theory. And that's pretty common with a lot of things that, that we do. You know, there should be something new out there. So we're going to continue looking for that. But with this new particle that we found, we have to make a lot of measurements now and really understand what it is. Um, people like me are going to be sitting down and, and actually, you know, trying to figure out how this thing behaves, you know, what happens when you look in detail at, at different uh, interactions that it has with other, part other particles. Um, a lot of the theory uh, colleagues out there will, you know, giving us be some ideas about how we might actually tear apart uh, the fundamental theory and look at different avenues that could explain what we're seeing as well. So there's a lot of work left to do, you know, just to understand what we've seen today. Excellent. Well, in the studio is Wade Fisher. He is with MSU's Department of Physics and Astronomy, and he was a part of the discovery of the Higgs boson, which basically is responsible for giving mass to matter. Um, so, Wade Fisher, thank you so much for joining us tonight and talking about the Higgs boson, and congratulations to the findings. My pleasure to be here. Thank you.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last week, Michigan was granted a waiver from the No Child Left Behind mandate. Schools will now have a lot more flexibilities when it comes to the federal program. Here to talk about what it means for teachers and students in the state is Stephanie Vancouvering, who is part of the MSU's K-12 outreach team and was a big part of this, uh, this waiver for No Child Left Behind. So welcome to the program, Stephanie. Thank you. First off, how did Michigan gain this flexibility from No Child Left Behind? No Child Left Behind has been here for almost a decade now or more than, correct? Correct. So how did how was it that, you know, a decade later, the U.S. government basically said, yeah, you can have a little more flexibility with this. What ended up happening? Well, No Child Left Behind was first adapted in 2001, and it was a highly uh, controversial accountability program in many respects for a number of years. One of the key provisions of No Child Left Behind uh, was that all students, 100% of learners across the country, had to attain proficiency by the year 2014. And 2014 is only two two years away. Congress was slow to act to reauthorize the law, and so the U.S. Department of Education decided to take matters into its own hands. It offered states um, exemptions from some of the specific requirements of No Child Left Behind, while still retaining the spirit and manner of the law, which intends for all students to reach a high degree of proficiency. Um, we are living in some very exciting times where public education is concerned. We have the widespread av- availability of data, which is changing how we look at teaching and learning in some very profound ways. And the U.S. Department of Education crafted a waiver opportunity that allowed states to use this opportunity and, and the availability of this data to reimagine how education is delivered. Wow. And what are the biggest changes that we're going to see in our education system in Michigan with this new flexibility? What you're going to see is a system that is much more intensely focused on the learner rather than on compliance. We are going to have educators who are collaborating, opening the doors to their classrooms and starting to think about individual learner needs, not only in individual buildings, but across districts. You're going to see... um, a much greater emphasis on uh, performance and coherence in the system. Uh, we truly believe um, at MSU, which is fantastically pleased to have been part of not only the design of the state's waiver request, but also significant components of its implementation, um, we have been extremely pleased to see a greater focus on coherence within the system instead of a lot of the noise and the focus on getting high test scores and getting those compliant res- compliance results, which are still going to be an important factor, um, we're seeing that greater supports are being brought to bear within districts to help teachers and educators as a whole develop solutions that they already have within them, that they know are possible and necessary to achieve great learning results with their students. What would you say wasn't working when it came to No Child Left Behind? I believe that there was a tremendous amount of worry and concern about test scores as a result of No Child Left Behind. There was a tremendous focus on compliance um, and hitting these these deadlines. Now, that's not to say that accountability is going away. There is a tremendous amount of public attention going to be paid on student results. But these results are now focused on growth, 
rather than absolute outcomes. And so schools that are struggling today are going to have greater interventions that are going to be diagnostic in nature. It's not going to assume any longer that because you are achieving a low test score this year that you're doing nothing right. The answer is going to be now coming in to figure out exactly what's happening in each local school community and diagnose the root causes of those issues and then find customized local solutions that bring about the best expertise each school and district have to bear and getting those engines in motion. We're going to be fitting the gears of success together rather than assuming that they all need to be rebuilt from scratch. Yeah, so basically probably what was happening was people weren't meeting this this overall, you know, level of test scores. And then so you would have students that may have been doing much better than the year before, you know, jumping maybe like two grade levels or, you know, when it came to reading, for example, or, you know, individually they would succeed, but still would get punished because they didn't meet that overall test score that, 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 that schools wanted. So the idea is that you would want to look at, oh, the student is improving a lot rather Mm -hmm. than this person didn't make the cut. Right. And and data allows us to see those kinds of trends with greater specificity. Another great trend um, and difference that you will see under No Child Left Behind, uh, as it's currently revised here in Michigan, is an attention on achievement gaps. And those are the gaps that exist between a school's highest performing students and its lowest performing students. Um, there are a great number of actually very high performing schools in Michigan that have never been identified for any sort of inter- Prevention or a challenge in the past that are now going to be um, selected and grouped into a category called focus schools. And these schools are schools that whatever their their aggregated achievement may be, they are experiencing a gap. Uh, and they have students that are in populations that within those buildings are, for whatever reason, underserved. And part of what you're going to see now is a single-minded effort to go in and try to find out what's happening with these specific student population, what the data is telling us, and then um, how we can start to turn performance around for those learners. So with these changes, how are we going to do those interventions to get um, more that that personal student growth as well as um, bridging the gap between those different populations that are, you know, the achievement gap. Um, what are teachers going to have to do to help with this process and whether, what other interventions will be taking place? Well, um, Michigan State University is actually involved in helping to train and deploy a series of facilitators, basically, who will compile a school's data and a district's data and be able to look at it overall and then lead the district and the school in conducting their own professional dialogue. Teachers are going to be opening the doors of their classrooms. They are going to be talking to each other. They're going to find out what works and what doesn't work with specific student populations. You will see a great cut down on the noise of compliance, and you're going to see a greater emphasis on data-based dialogue that helps inform what's happening at the student level, the classroom level, and the school level every single day. Now, what will the state, now we're not completely free of No Child Left Behind, so what will the state still have to follow when it comes to No Child Left Behind? Well, No Child Left Behind is actually a a political or colloquial term for a, a a statute known as the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And through that act, schools are still required to um, uh, participate in all of the requirements to receive funding under Title I, Title IX, all of these other federal laws that um, have dollars attached to them. Um, This law still will continue to fund a statewide system of support for schools that will be provided by the state of Michigan. And that statewide system of support is particularly what we are going to change the flavor and the structure of in order to be able to deliver stronger student results. And how will school districts be held accountable under these new flexibilities in comparison to when we were just held accountable for No Child Left Behind? Well, No Child Left Behind had a lot of uh, emphasis on adequate yearly progress, or AYP as it was known. Um, In Michigan, we are moving away from that single AYP model, and we're moving into more of a scorecard approach. 
Schools will be given a rating um, on a five-point color scale that will be easy for parents and educators and community members to understand. They will know right away at a glance how a school is performing in a variety of different measures. And schools will be able to see those measures and get a much more uh, detailed, accurate picture of their own performance. Now, there still are measures down the road. Um, in Michigan, we are assuming uh, that all schools will be able to make um, 85% proficiency with all of their students within a 10-year period. For some schools, that that measure is going to be a steeper growth curve than you will see in other schools. Um, but the bar is still high, but we believe it's more attainable and that it is going to treat all learners um, much more uh, robustly, uh, learning as a, as a whole child rather than as a single measure of absolute performance on a given day. And what would happen if students didn't meet adequate yearly process before during No Child Left Behind? Um, then the school would be... Um, singled out for intervention under the statewide system of support. This balanced scorecard is is still not going to um, eliminate that need. There are schools that are in the bottom 5% of all of the schools across the state of Michigan, and those proficiency um, scores are, are very low in these schools. We're seeing, you know, 1, 2, and 3% of students able to achieve in some of these buildings. And those schools are still going to receive a significant amount of attention under the new system of accountability that we have in place. But um, how they are treated is going to be very different. Um, they are going to be supported. There are going to be diagnostic efforts that are made. And they are going to be um, deeply touched and um, brought together as a community to uh, improve in ways that are, are significant and lasting. Um, and we also have now the School Reform Office and the Educational Achievement Authority, which says that if a school fails to achieve over a certain period of time, they will actually be removed from their district and face um, some additional uh, redesign and, and reform measures that are going to potentially um, bring them into some some fairly uh, deep water. So that lens of accountability isn't going away. What we are trying to do is, as part of this office, through the State Department of Education, through the School Reform Office, is lead to some lasting, uh, meaningful outcomes that will uh, spell change for all of the learners that are attending those schools. And how do you think that this change, um, having this new flexibility under No Child Left Behind, will affect the way that teachers teach? Um, I know under No Child Left Behind, there was a lot of talk about, quote-unquote, teaching to the test. Do you think that's still going to be an issue under this these new flexibilities where you're looking at student growth versus everyone meeting a certain um, level for for test scores. Well, um, the test is always going to be there, um, and we now have the Common Core state standards that are coming into play, and the test is designed to measure progress toward those Common Core state standards. So any school that is effectively teaching those standards in, in deep ways, in ways that are not rote memorization, but really include a, a comprehensive understanding by the student of what's happening, those students are going to perform well on the test. So the test is there as, as, as a pretty important indicator of what's happening in a particular school, um, but it's not the only indicator. And so we're going to see some some broader uh, inclusion of other concepts as part of that process. But teachers are going to be um, asked to lend a lot more of their own voices, their own ideas, and their own um, concepts to the professional dialogue that is going to be part of this whole process. So you're going to see teachers much more actively engaged beyond their own classrooms. In the studio is Stephanie Vancouvering, and she is part of the MSU's K-12 outreach team. She also played a big part in um, having Michigan gain these flexibilities from No Child Left Behind. And again, she was in the studio to talk about how Michigan uh, last week was granted a waiver from No Child Left Behind, which gives the state more flexibilities when it comes to the federal mandate. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And still on the topic of education tonight, Don Heller is the dean of the College of Education here at MSU. And last week he spoke at a U.S. Senate hearing on the issue of college affordability. Up next is an interview I did with Don Heller in May about the subject. So you have said that higher education in the United States is under attack. How so? 
Well, there's a lot of criticism of colleges and universities for being too expensive for students who aren't graduating, for students who are graduating but not getting jobs. So we're under attack from both politicians as well as the public and the media. I graduated with a BA in music education last last May. Now I'm getting、uh, my master's, but I'm watching some of my friends who are teaching now, and they're and they're struggling to pay off their loans on a first year teacher's salary. Can you tell me about the model in which some universities are making programs like engineering, science, and technology more expensive than majors like humanities? Well, there's a lot of universities that are talk about、uh, talking about differentiating tuition based on the major that uh, students uh, choose. There haven't been a lot that have gone far down that road.、Uh, I don't think Michigan State is ready for something like that. But sooner or later, as the cost of tuition continues to rise, I think you're going to find universities looking at those majors that, first of all, cost more money because they have laboratories and things like that, but also where their graduates earn more in the labor markets. And I think universities are going to start to realize that they're going to have to charge more for those programs. Programs and less for those programs where students don't have the kind of lucrative jobs they get at the end of their degree. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. On one hand, I mean, I think about my program was a five-year program, which is longer than than most. People are racking up a little more debt, not、mm-hmm. getting paid as much. But at the same time, do you think that it would inhibit some people from majoring in things like engineering and science because it's more expensive? Yeah, this is the rub against differentiating tuition by the major that we don't want to price out of particular programs students who can't afford them. So any university that's going to do that has to also make sure it has financial aid for students who need it, so that a student can choose which program they're going to major in, which degree they're going to get, without worrying about whether they can afford it or not. With college getting more and more expensive, do you foresee it being a place for only the elite in the future? And, and if if so, how would that affect the U.S. in the long run? Well, that's a real concern. That、uh, as college gets more and more expensive, students from low and moderate income families won't be able to afford it. it it's not so much、uh, they're not going to be able to afford college. My concern is that if you look down the road, we're going to get to a point where we have students from、uh, upper income families who can afford to go to a nice residential college like Michigan State University, take courses, partake in all the activities that we have here. But if you're a student from a poorer family, the only options you're going to have would be an online education, and that I think would be a real shame, not just for those students, but also for the Nation. You have said that Michigan public universities are worse off than the rest of the nation, having experienced funding declines of more than 26 percent since 2001. How has that affected college students in Michigan and, and perhaps the job market? Well, the biggest impact certainly is that students are paying more for their education because of the cut in appropriations from the state legislature and governors. So that's the largest impact. You know, if this if we continue down this road, you're likely to see the point where we can't offer as many courses as frequently as we'd like, and that could stretch out the amount of time it takes students to earn a degree and get out into the labor markets. I don't think we're there yet at Michigan State, but certainly in other states, we've seen that pattern. California, for example, is the poster child for this.、Uh, universities that just don't have the resources to be able to offer the courses. Courses that students need to be able to graduate, and students are stretching out how long it's taking them to earn a degree. One of your many specialties is looking at the issue of college access and, and choice for low-income minority students. What are some interesting bits of information you have learned while while looking at that topic and issue? Well, probably the most interesting thing is it's exactly these kinds of students who are getting priced out of going to college as tuition goes up, or they're getting forced into a lower-cost institution. Sometimes that's a community college instead of a four-year university or a lower-cost public university. Probably the key thing with these students is making sure they know about the kind of financial aid that's available to them, because there is lots of financial aid out there. I also have a lot of concerns about the attacks on student loans.、Um, you know, appropriate levels of borrowing make sense for a student who's going to do that. To Earn a bachelor's degree, but there's been lots out there in the media that focus on students who borrow a hundred thousand dollars a year for their bachelor's degree, and yet those are nothing more than anecdotes. That the average borrowing that students are engaging in, those students who are getting a bachelor's degree, are reasonable amounts, and most students are able to pay those back. Mm-hmm. Michigan experienced a drop of twelve percent for state appropriations for higher education in the past year. And you under you believe that state appropriation will not recover after this recession, and as it has in the past, why do you think that? 
Well, it's really, it's the politics, Emily. As states have fewer and fewer resources, they're less, just less willing to put money into higher education. And all the indicators are that we're going to be very lucky to see probably level funding, maybe very modest increases, whereas in the past, in a recession, when we had cuts to higher education, uh, once the recession was over, most legislators and governors were willing to put money back in and invest it in higher education. And politically, it just doesn't look like there's that will to do that anymore. What can we learn from other countries as it relates to higher education and in making it affordable and, and accessible? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, certainly in other countries, we're seeing the same kinds of trends here. There are many European countries, for example, that uh, a decade ago had free higher education. Students didn't have to pay any tuition. In fact, received living stipends from the government. The trend, however, in most of those countries now is to start to charge tuition just as we do. Uh, in England, for example, uh, they've made a decision about a year ago to go ahead and increase tuition fees there so that once that's implemented, you're going to find that tuition fees in England, which historically have been much lower than the U.S., will actually be higher than the typical public university in the United States. So it's not that we can learn that much from the other countries. They're really catching up to us. Hmm. That's interesting. How is MSU trying to tackle with the issue of college access and affordability? Well, the university's got a number of initiatives. Certainly a very important thing they did a number of years ago was make a commitment to low- and moderate-income students by focusing their institutional financial aid resources on them. So they make a commitment to those students that they come to the university, get a degree, graduate with very reasonable levels of debt, and go off into the workforce with that. That's a, certainly an important thing. I think it, it, the board and the administration is doing its best to try to hold down tuition increases uh, as best as they can. However, the reality is if we want to maintain the quality of education, we need resources to do that. And if they're not going to come from the legislature, the next big source is students and parents. Do you foresee the situation happening in which more jobs require a bachelor degree, yet less people can afford that degree? And if so, is there any way to avoid that situation? Well, that's a two-part question. And the first part is, yeah, certainly all the projections about labor markets down the road are that more and more students are going to need some form of post-secondary training. And, and I say that to distinguish from a bachelor's degree because it's not necessarily these jobs are all going to require a bachelor's degree, but they require some kind of training that students get after they graduate from high school. That could be a community college, it could be a proprietary institution, it could be a short-term certificate, uh, or it could be a bachelor's degree. So there certainly are going to be increased demands for those kinds of credentials. Whether students can afford to get them, that's a real question. And ultimately, it's going to be up to policymakers here in Michigan as well as in Washington and institutional leaders to ensure that they've got enough financial aid to be able to get students into the colleges and through to a degree once they're there. You, you study policy. Um, you've also studied policy. What would you like to see higher education, uh, see a change in higher education policy and finance in Michigan? Well, I think the, the primary thing the state needs to do is to focus on financial aid. Um, the state of Michigan has cut its financial aid budget by about three-quarters, going back about three or four years ago before the recession. So the most important thing the state could do to ensure that those low- and moderate-income students, and these are the students who are on the margins of going to college or not, that these students can actually afford to go to college is to re-appropriate uh, funds for the state financial aid programs, and those should be need-based funds targeted at these students, uh, and give them the kind of help they need in addition to federal and institutional financial aid to be able to afford to go to college. Well, in the studio is Don Heller. He is the dean of MSU's College of Education, and he was in to talk about the issues facing higher education today. Don Heller, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, this is Angelina Mosier. You sew me together when I'm in pieces. So you not rompe cabezas, pero you still look for the missing piece. Pass. When I was young, you stitched a couple of much-needed buttons and patches, but you were too busy, too burdened to put that store-bought sewing machine to real use. And in the box it stayed, the holes on my soul, too big, irreparably damaged. Y para coser mi corazón, que frecuentemente estalla con emoción, usas hilo. Pero hilo es delgado como la línea de entre depresión y alegría. I saw you sewing, patching, struggling. I saw you burrow your brow, but never deeper than your smile. That smile that made me burst at the seams, and it seems you use the thread of angels as you tread between seamstress 
and Empress. You saw me unravel, and you sought open my chest and sought to repress the most intricate, intimate spindles of my soul and rework my tapestry of identity. You sew me together with little pieces, one colored love and the other felt of affection. I saw you sewing, struggling, knitting, patching, weaving, and igniting, lighting that fire on the stove and lighting that fire in my belly that flames a passion in my heart. You always add the perfect ingredients to my brewing mood and I bubble over when the pressure's too much when it's too hot and I'm gonna burn I can't take this like chamomile you calm and like aloe vera you cool like honey you cure the bitter taste of life and you never air out my dirty laundry but you wash it with your words and wash it clean and fresh out of the dryer out of the dryer so warm wrap this baby blanket around me that's missing pink little patches where Mickey Mouse's cheeks used to be but it's okay because it's you that's my security blanket and when tears make me the emotional wet blanket you wring me out but I'm over here wringing my wrist because I said I never wanted to be like you. I never wanted to cry like you. I didn't want to be weak like you. And I was rebellious. I refused to cook or clean or, or do anything. But now, all I want to be is everything you are. Te adoro y te amo, mamá. Eres tica y eres única. Loca ni rabiosa. Your words will always hold the power to destroy the universe or to give an angel her wings. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Angelina Mosier. And that was Impact Exposure for the night. This is Emily Fox, your host, as I have been for the past five years, Impact Exposure Director, meaning I put the show together and have full creative control over the past four years. It has been an experience of a lifetime, and this was my last live show. Thank you so much, listeners, for being there for me. Um, I've grown tremendously over the years. I started as a music education undergraduate major, fell in love with radio, and as of yesterday was hired by Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, an NPR member station. Um, so you can tune in 91.7 Ann Arbor, 104.1 Grand Rapids, and 91.1 in Flint. Um, I will be a producer for their station as well as fill in Morning Edition host, um, thank you so much for the memories. Impact Exposure has meant the world for me and has changed my life. Thank you so much, Impact E9FM, and goodbye. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.